And so last week we talked about that Paul was talking about that we need to be mature believers. Don't just stay as babies, you know, but understand that there are certain things that we need to do to grow in our walk. And he says, my goal, the thing that I am striving for is that I would present you perfect to Jesus one day. That I did everything I possibly could to make sure that you were mature in your walk. And so today, we're going to find out what he talks about in verse 6. So it says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, Buried with him in baptism in which you were, you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Dear Jesus, as we open up your word this evening, we pray that you would speak to us. Show us, Lord, how we can walk in your ways. Experience the fullness that you have for us, Lord, as you came into this world and you uh, came to give us life in that much more abundantly. We pray that we would walk in this abundant life this evening, but we need your Holy Spirit to do that. So help us not to fall off track, be distracted, and to let your spirit speak now. In Jesus' name, amen. My favorite state is probably California. I love California. And any, any person who has been in California with me can testify to this, that every single time the plane touches down when I land in California, my countenance changes. I'm smiling. I'm looking around and I'm just like worshiping God at, the, you know, everything. Like it could smell terrible. There's a, I remember like in L.A., it's actually formed like a bowl. So because of that, there's smog that kind of sits above it at all times. And it's like this weird grayish, red, ugly, disgusting color. Like it's, it's toxic waste, right? Toxic fumes. And I remember looking at it with John Latona one day. And I was like, that looks so beautiful. He's like... That's, that's smog. That's like killing people. But just, I love California. I love the donuts. I love the rock climbing there, the weather. Everything about California is just perfect. I have a lot of friends there. And we're actually going there this Sunday. It's going to be amazing. But imagine, imagine you have a favorite state, I'd suppose, right? Maybe it's not New Jersey. Maybe you have a, a secret place in Florida. You love to go with your family or your friends or somewhere in the country that you just dream of, you're like, this is amazing. But what if, although I believed that California would be a great experience for me, I decided to go on the plane on Sunday night and just stay in the airport all week? That would be kind of strange, right? You would think it's strange if I told you that I was going to California and all I did was stay in the airport and I never went outside. 
But what if all my friends were saying, like, California is terrible. All the people are superficial, and they're, like, weird, and they'll, like, judge you, and the food's terrible. And, and I let that dictate how I'm going to have the experience of California. And so because of that, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to, like, look a, like a sellout, so I'm just going to stay in the airport the entire time. What I would be doing in that moment is I would be cheapening my experience of California, right? Because I didn't see everything that California has to offer. And much in the same way, I believe, listen very carefully, I believe many people are living the Christian life in a similar manner. In that, you're a Christian, you went on the plane, you've landed in the destination, but you haven't been willing to experience all that Christ has to offer you. Because of, maybe people are going to judge you, or they're telling you, like, don't go outside, it's dangerous, there's shootings there, and all this chaos and whatever. And because you let people's opinions dictate it, you are kind of reserved about it. But if you truly love that state, isn't it true? Like, people come back, and they have, like, California t-shirts, or they have, like, Colorado sweaters or whatever. Because you, re you represent, you're like, oh, I love that place, and I need something to remind me of that place. And just like in the same way some people have cheesy Jesus t-shirts and whatever, you know. I think that many Christians are cheapening their experience with God because they're afraid of everybody else's perceptions or they're afraid of becoming somebody else that's not really them. Right? Isn't it true, like, imagine a world where you stop cursing and you're like, well, that wouldn't be me because I always use that language. Or you start talking about the Bible, you start reading the Bible, and you're like, well, I'm just not a person who reads the Bible. I remember back when I was in high school, I had a friend who told me that he didn't want to become a Christian because he, he felt like his sin kind of defined him. You know, and not like in the Christian way, like in, in a sense that this just makes up who he is, his mistakes and everything. This is who he is. And so that's why he didn't want to become a Christian because he was afraid of becoming something else that he didn't recognize. Well, I would say that for the Christian... You be believing the lie that you are supposed to stay reserved or not do anything, just stay put, and you've accepted Jesus, and that should be enough, and you just do whatever else you want. But the life that Jesus has for you will always be better than the world and what the world has to offer you. And by world, I mean not like earth. I'm talking about the spiritual realm of darkness, the enemy, Satan and his demons, would love for you to have a cheapened experience while you are here on this earth. And so because of that, what he'll do is he'll distract you, he'll tempt you, he'll tell you all these different things. Or sometimes what he'll do is he'll tell you that you need something else in order to get out of the airport. He'll tell you there's something, in order to really experience the fullness of God, you need to do these other things. And that's what we're going to be talking about this evening is that there were these false teachers that were talking to this church, the Colossians. They were telling them that, well, listen, I know what Jesus taught. It was great and all. But really, there are things that if you don't get this, you will not really have the true Christian experience. You will not really be able to reach God, to speak to God, etc. And here's the thing. False belief can keep us from experiencing all God has to offer us. And so the first thing we learn about Jesus and correct doctrine against the backdrop of this false belief is that Jesus gives us true tradition. Jesus gives us true tradition. Look at verse 6 through 8. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, 
So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So he says that there's traditions, right? He'll be talking about that in just a second. Oh, I didn't read verse 8. Let me read verse 8. Sorry. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So that's what he's saying. He says, there are people out there that want to cheapen your experience. So when it says empty deceit, philosophy, he's not talking about taking a philosophy class. He says, there's a body of knowledge out there. There are doctrines, there are teachings that are false and going to tell you that you have to obey our traditions. You have to follow our rules. You have to do what we do rather than the tradition that you have received from Jesus. So here's the thing. So how does it have practical application for us? Well, there are a lot of cults out there and there are a lot of traditions that people do without even thinking about why they do them just because everybody else does them. And I think we've talked about this before, but this isn't necessarily a tradition, but this is a body of belief passed down for generations. For instance, why is it that when we envision heaven, like we talked about on the retreat, why is it that we think that heaven is filled with naked babies and cherubs and, and we're just floating and singing worship songs for all of eternity? Why do we believe that that's what heaven is? And we're like spirits. We're not bodies. We're just like floating in the air and we're like angels. That is a tradition that's passed down for many, many years and people just accept it blindly. And so as far as how we as believers, followers of Jesus have tradition, the only tradition we should receive is from Jesus himself. If anyone ever teaches you anything contrary to what the revealed word of God says the Bible, scripture, then you should ignore them. My youth pastor used to say, if it's not in the word, it shouldn't be heard. It's really cheesy and corny, but it sticks with you. And the whole thing is, if you go to a church and people are telling you things, and they're saying different things about like things that you should believe or things you should do to get close to God, and it's not in the Bible, you should be very careful because it might be distracting you from Jesus himself. And that's what the enemy would love to do. So they would say, you can't trust what you've been taught. This early church was trying to, trying to follow the ways of Jesus, and people were trying to distract him from that. And so he talks about in verse 7 that you should just walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. In other words, there's foundational knowledge that we shouldn't depart from. And as believers, we need building blocks of our faith, don't we? We need to know things like, in order to get to heaven... You need to believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with mouth, or if you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and you confess with mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's it. That's the building blocks of Christianity. And then above and beyond that, we build on that foundation. That we know that in order to get to heaven, we don't try to earn God's favor, but we have it by just simply accepting what he has done by dying on the cross for our sins. And everything else is building on that foundation. But if you destroy the foundation, everything else just, is just crumbled. And you hear, especially in the, in the past decade or so, there's been teachers that said things like, well, the virgin birth, that sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Like, think about it. Like, somehow God came into the universe by a woman, even though she had a baby, and then didn't go through the proper 
ways of having a baby. Like, that doesn't make any sense. How does that happen, right? So the whole thing to some people felt embarrassing, weird, strange, hard to explain to other people. And so they rationalized away and said, do we really need to believe in the virgin birth in order to be Christians? Maybe you don't. And so there's this guy, this false teacher who would talk about like, maybe Christianity isn't like, you know, it's not like bricks. Because if you take enough bricks out of it, each doctrine represents a brick. So like the virgin birth, the resurrection, etc. You take out enough bricks, the whole thing crumbles, right? He says, what if it's like springs? And so you take out the virgin birth and the whole thing still bounces like a trampoline. It still works. What if Christianity is like that? The problem is that the Bible says in the Bible that if you don't believe in the resurrection and the resurrection is false, we above all men are the most pitiable. In other words, we're still dead in our sins. We have nothing to believe in. And that's what's interesting about Christianity is you can test it. The other religions, you can still take out different principles out of it, even if the, belief, you know, the, the founder of the religion is dead and gone and whatever. You don't have to believe in the founder of the religion to believe in the principles. But if our founder of our religion, Jesus, wasn't really who he said he was, then the whole thing crumbles. And so we got to be careful to ask ourselves, what is the tradition and what is the foundation that God himself has given? And then not to ditch what we've been taught, but instead to grow. And he also uses this strong verbiage in verse 8. Um, Don't let anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. So that word cheat means whole captive, or as I saw in one translation or one commentary, to carry away as booty. That was a great way to describe it, I guess. But in other words, don't let anybody trick you. Don't let anybody hold you captive by the ways that they just insert false doctrine, false beliefs. So, so you might not think this has any practical application, but it absolutely will. If not now, especially after you graduate. And this is how it happens, because I've watched it happen. People go in and they're just like, yeah, Calvary Chapel. Yeah, I, I've been to that church. But uh, they don't teach you about the sovereignty of God. Like, what do you mean? Has Pastor Lloyd ever talked about predestination? Has Alan Kahn ever talked about election? I have, by the way, but don't you know about these other doctrines in Scripture? Like, they never, why don't they emphasize that? Why don't they ever talk about church history? Hmm, I wonder. And they just throw in seeds of doubt into your mind. You're like, yeah. I don't think he talks about the sovereignty of God or election or predestination or whether or not we have free will or things like that. So maybe, maybe I shouldn't go to that church anymore. And so they, they throw in little seeds of doubt. And here's what I've, I've found. What happens is people throw in these little seeds and you haven't learned how to openly disagree. All of you, young adults, teenagers, People are terrible at learning how to disagree with somebody else. That's why we have a divided nation right now. On Facebook, I know you don't have Facebook. I'll explain to you from the other world. You know, I come from the world of Facebook. I'll explain it to you. On Facebook, you have one side that just completely just like has an echo chamber. And everything, everything they say is just like, yeah, we love this president. And he's going to be awesome. And we're going to change the world and whatever. And then on the complete opposite side, you have people saying, like, it's the end of the world. We're all going to die. And oh, just like crying. You're just like, oh, my gosh. And these people don't talk to each other. And we live in the same country. But they're super bold whenever they have a comment thread. 
and they'll say whatever they, they're like ultimate PhD suddenly, and they're like, I've done the research, you're, you're reading fake news, and, blah, 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 and they're just going crazy, right? You know it, even if you're not on Facebook. There's just crazy people just commenting, but they'll never do it to your face, ever. And you probably have this too, like people text you and they'll be like super bold, guys, you'll ask out a girl via text, she comes to youth group, and you're just like, oh, oh, oh I have to go to the bathroom again for the fifth time. And she's like, are you, are you okay? Are you sick? You're like, oh, you're just like running away. She's like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I just, just uh, I have the love bug. I, mean, I, I don't mean that. I don't have that at all. Right? Why do the guys do that? Stop being a wimp. If you like a girl, as long as you're over 60 and your parents are okay with it, ask her out. What is going to happen? You don't know. That's what I'm saying. Can I get an amen? Okay. What was my point? Okay. Listen. Learn, learn how to openly disagree with somebody in a respectful way. So that does not mean, that does not mean that you go up to someone and be like, you're wrong. You're stupid. Like, that's what kindergartners do when they talk about, like, I remember being, like, I don't know, in third grade, and everyone has, like, an opinion on the election in third grade. Like, well, my dad said, and you're just like, I'm going to go play with my toys, okay? Like, you can live in the world of adults. I will live in the world of children. So there are some people that they, like, they're so stuck up, and they're proud, and they're just, you know, the way that they present it is not in love at all. You speak the truth in love. So if you have a problem, this is why I'm telling you. This is your takeaway. So if you have a question, like someone says that to you and be like, they don't really teach that there. Or like, what do you think about that? Or just like, really? You believe that that's a sin? Like your church believes that? That's weird. And then you start thinking in your mind like, I don't, I don't know if, yeah. Now that I think about it, that seems weird that that's a sin. Or you start thinking in terms of like, I, people are going to hell for all of eternity if they don't believe in Jesus? And so in your mind, you have all these questions, but you're afraid of voicing them because you're afraid that I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to yell at you. Or maybe just like you're, you're afraid of being that guy that just brings it up. So I see it, once again, not just in teenagers, in young adults and older adults too. Like, no one knows how to just disagree and just voice their opinion. But if you don't know how to disagree, then you're always going to have, you don't have true education without people being able to think through things for themselves, wrestle with things. Be able to say, like, I don't know if I agree with that, and then figure out how they came to the same conclusion. You need people that don't just tell them what they want to hear and have people surrounding them that all believe the same thing, like on Facebook, you need people that are willingly to respectfully disagree. So that's what I'm saying. And for you, that's a very important thing. Because here's the thing. Maybe, maybe someone throws something at you, right? Like, um, I believe that in the Bible, in Romans chapter 9, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that means that you don't have free will. You don't have a choice. God chooses some people against his will to go to heaven and chooses some people against their will to go to hell. I believe that God chooses, man doesn't have a choice, and that's it. Like, that's what some people believe. I don't believe in that. And so maybe you have that belief, right? And then you come here, 
and then you can talk to me, and maybe those questions would be easily cleared up if you just talked about it. But because you refuse to, one day you just have like, you're just so convinced that you just kind of storm out the church and you're just like, that's it, I'm done, I'm never going back, they never taught this, we never talked about it. Well, you never asked the question. And what's really unfortunate and sad is I've seen a lot of people leave the church because they haven't learned to do that. So if you can do that, you'll go a long way, not just in theology, but in life in general. If you can learn to just talk to people about their offenses or talk about your disagreements, it'll go a long way. So he talks about two different things. He talks about human tradition that might hold people captive and basic principles of the world. So let's talk about the first one, human tradition. What would that be like? So for them, human tradition might be you need to have a works-based relationship with God where you're constantly doing different traditions that are passed down, rituals, sacrifices, whatever, so that God loves you more. And obviously we don't have that. But do we have some human traditions passed down that people are stuck in and they don't know how to get out? Well, there are some people that believed that you can only receive the Holy Spirit if a bishop confirms you. He has to put his hand on your head and that's the only way that you can receive the Holy Spirit. There are some people that believe in order for God to accept you, you have to pray ten Hail Marys or Our Fathers. There are certain prayers that get you close to God or you have to go through certain methods in order to reach God, which once again, you have to ask yourself, okay, maybe you believe that. Where do you find that in Scripture? If you don't find it in Scripture, then how do you know it came from God? And then you're thinking, well, how do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? That's another question for another time. Great answers. But this is your chance that you get to openly disagree and come talk to me afterwards, and I'll give you some reasons. But if we talked about it now, we'd have to talk about every single Bible study, and we'd just, like, we never get to the point. So, Learn to openly disagree if you you have that opinion. The second thing is basic principles of the world. And here it's kind of poorly translated. What it's actually talking about is elemental spirits. That was weird. Hopefully no one was conjuring up a spirit back there. (laughs) Elemental spirits. So they were so terrified of, and you see this in, in different portions of scripture, They're so afraid of demonic forces and spiritual forces and demonic powers based on the things that they believed. And so that's why Paul said at one point, he says, listen, there's meat out there. So back in their their day, they'd have like, they'd all buy meat just like we do at the market. And you could get discounted meat if you bought it after it was sacrificed to an idol. Because you got the statues and stuff. This is how it makes sense. An idol doesn't eat things, right? It just sits there. So, like, if you're sacrificing some lambs, lamb, plural, lambs, whatever, sheeps, sheep, (laughs) you're sacrificing animals and you put it on the altar, um, it's not going anywhere. There's no magical powers that are going to, like, dissolve it or eat it up or whatever. And so the priests, after they were done, they would just be like, well, it's just sitting there, so we're going to put it on the market and we'll put it on a discount. So all the Christians, it didn't really bother them, but, like, sweet, can save money and I can like tithe more whatever they wanted to do with it and there are other Christians that are just like totally wigged out on it they're like you're eating meat that was sacrificed to demons like how do you know you're not gonna be possessed by a demon as it goes into your belly and stuff and Paul's just like okay if it offends you I will never eat meat again which is like it's cool that's very bold of Paul that's that's very nice of him so there are things that bother them there's traditions like that but they're very conscious of the spiritual realms And so because of that, he says, beware, because there are some people that are afraid 
that there are these elemental spirits, these demonic forces that might seek to take over you or possess you or oppress you. And so maybe you've had those fears too, right? Like you've heard people talk about things when you were little or being demon-possessed and stuff. And so like I was always terrified of that. Like I remember like people would play like these clips of like demon-possessed people and stuff. And that would freak me out for like five years. Not even kidding. I remember hearing like this tape of this woman who is demon-possessed over a radio program. And the Bible answer man's like talking to her and just like trying to cast out the demon. And listen to this tape like scarred me so much. That for like five years, I prayed for that poor woman. Like every single night. I'm not even joking. Like I prayed for her every single night. Because I was just like, that's got to be such a scarring experience to be possessed by a demon. And it's like out of you and stuff. So anyway, so they were, they were terrified of this stuff. And what Paul is saying is, don't let, people, don't let people mess with you. Saying like, hey, if you don't do these things, there will be demons that come out and oppress you and possess you and whatever. He's like, don't you know, as it says in other scriptures, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's what he goes on to say in the next passage. So look at verse 9 through 10. It says, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So that last part, who is the head of all principality and power, what he's saying is, don't let anybody fool you. Like you have to appease these spirits, these angels, whatever, in order to reach God. Instead, if you have Christ and his fullness, you're complete. And if Christ is over all things because he's the head of the universe, then you are complete in him, which automatically puts you above those people in authority and power. Doesn't mean you're in the same power as God, obviously, but it means that you are raised with Christ in that fullness. So don't feel like you need to go through some methods Pray to some saints in order to reach God because you are actually complete in him. So the second thing we learn tonight is that Jesus gives us true filling. He makes us complete. Not only do we receive the true tradition from Jesus, but we receive true fulfillment, true filling from Jesus. So that's kind of like the sense that you get there when it says you are complete in him is that in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, there is no reservation of God's power upon him. He was God and is God. And just in the same way, you are full, you are filled in Jesus. You don't need anything else. Just like Jesus wasn't a semi-God, a demi-God, just like half-God. He was fully man and fully God. In the same way, we are fully complete in Jesus. That's the sense that you get there. And he was combating the heresies, the false doctrines that were saying that, eh, Jesus, he was kind of like a lesser dissension of God. Like a mini-God. But he wasn't fully God. And there are people in our day-to-day, the Mormons, believe that we will be like God too. Just like Jesus was a mini-God, we're going to be a part of God, and we're all going to be like gods one day. Which, once again, is a false teaching. It's not from the Lord. So, you're complete in him. And I think that's something that we need to remember, right? Amen? Like there's so many times that we feel like we're lacking something. We need to do something for God to accept us, for, to forgive us, to love us. But you don't need anything else. And that's where it goes back to the vertical identity thing, right? We're always looking to another, another person to make us feel good inside, to tell us things that we want to hear. But at any point in time, you can sit down. Like if you haven't done this already, started the one-year Bible program, 
every single day, you can remind yourself of what God thinks about you. You don't need to go to the text message. You don't need to fish for compliments and be like, oh, I'm so ugly today. I look terrible. And someone says, you look amazing. Like, you know they're lying to you. Why would you want them to, like, give you compliments? I'm kidding. That was a joke. You look, all of you look amazing. But what's more important is that you daily receive love from your heavenly father because you know that what people say to you doesn't really last, right? It doesn't carry with you throughout the, like, it may, even the best of compliment, compliments by humans might last a little bit, a couple years. But after that, you can go back into that mode of depression and self-loathing. But if you have fulfillment from Christ, at any point in time, you can say, man, Jesus loves me. He, for, he has forgiven me of all my sins. I'm useful in the kingdom of God. I'm complete in him. I don't need anything else. I don't need money. All those things are great. Having nice things is great, but I don't need those things. Having a relationship is great. That's why Paul says, like, being married is great. Being single is good, too. And everybody's like, isn't being single a curse? What do you mean it's great? What do you mean you wish that all people were like you are? That's crazy. But that's why Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I can do, and this is where you get the verse that everyone misquotes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why did he say that? Do you know? He said that because literally from day to day, he had no idea where he was going to be. Some days he'd be hungry and he'd be in prison. And other days he'd be hanging out with his friend Lydia, who is a rich person who would have him in his mansion. And he'd be like feasting and just having a good time. So he literally would not know the condition of how he would be, where he'd be staying or the condition of his life from a day-to-day -day basis. But he says, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, I can do all things through Christ. I'm content. Do you have that secret of contentment? That secret of completion? That it does not matter what happens around you because you can have that deep-seated joy within you that comes from Jesus. And many people are just like, if we're honest, right, we fake it. Every single day is like, oh, man, terrible day. But I still have the joy of the Lord. Yeah, I'm totally joyful today. It's just like, no, you're not. You don't have the joy of the Lord. It has not become an inward reality. A.W. Tozer has this great concept I love. He spoke to me a number of years ago um, talking about nearness is likeness. And he said this, whenever we feel distant from God, it's not a spatial distance, Right? It's not like, it's like when you live in the same house as your parents and you're like, I feel distant from my father. It's not because he's in the other room. It's because you haven't chosen to sit down to him, sit down with him and have a conversation. And so here's the thing. If you feel far from God, it's not because you are spatially far from God because God is not far from any one of us. It's because you are unlike God. Well, the key then is just knowing him, knowing his character, knowing his love. And the more that you become like him, the closer you feel to him. Just like friendships, right? When you have a great friend, you feel so close to them. Even though it's like you, they could be half across the country and you still feel close to that person because you love them and you just think the same way every time you get together. It's just like you picked up right where you left off. It's because you're like that person. And it's the same way with the Lord. If you're feeling distant, perhaps you're not spending enough time with him. So get in the Bible, 
Start if you haven't been reading and you've been like on the retreat, you fell off track, now's the time to just pick it up again and say, I'm going to start where I left off and get to know the Lord so I can have that deep state of joy and be content at all times. The third thing is that we receive true payment from Jesus. We receive true tra tradition, a true fulfillment or filling, and we also receive the true payment. Jesus himself had paid for our sins. We see that in verse 11. It says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them and over them in it. Okay, so he started talking about this concept, and he, he says, the circumcision made without hands. And so back in the, in the days of um, the writing of the New Testament, they still were holding on to this ancient Jewish tradition. And so whenever you see that phrase, made without hands or with hands, that's talking about idols. And so when Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we don't have a house made with hands... But God has made us a house without hands in the heavens. That whole concept that he's talking about there is we're not worshiping these idols. And so idols in the Old Testament were things that you created, right? Like today we have idols inside of our hearts. But back then you would actually make a sculpture. If you're worshiping something, you wanted someone to give you things. You wanted the sun to provide sunshine so you could have crops and stuff. You worship the sun or the moon or whatever. You worship all these different things. But you create something. You wouldn't just worship the actual sun. You would create a figure, a statue. So when he talks about the circumcision without hands, what he's talking about is idolatry made out of a tradition of men. And people can make idols look for security in things that are traditions. How do I know this? Because some of you, unfortunately, the enemy has always tried to make you feel guilty. So you're constantly praying the, the sinner's prayer so that you feel forgiven. Right? We're making an idol out of the mechanism rather than recognizing that Jesus has simply forgiven us of our sins. That doesn't mean that I don't believe in rededication. But some of us, the enemy has totally told us that the only way to be forgiven is if that you really make it right. If you do certain things, like you pray this prayer or do this thing, then you're going to be forgiven. And if you don't, then you're not. Well, in the same way... Paul is saying this is a circumcision that Jesus has done for us so that we could be preserved. And so the interesting thing about this is if you think about what happened to Jesus, the whole concept of being cut off is, is a bad thing, right? So Jesus even said if your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off, right? You're cut off from a certain people if you're a sinner. You have to come out, exile them from your camp or whatever. Take the sin out. But if you think about what Jesus did for us, it actually says in the book of Isaiah, or sorry, not Isaiah, uh, book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26, it says, after 62 weeks in a prophecy about Jesus, it says the Messiah, or the Savior of the world, would be cut off, but not for himself. So now you have this particular prophecy that talks about there will be a cutting off, 
But it's not because he committed sin, but he's actually becoming the sin to be removed so the rest of us can be preserved. So just in that same illustration, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to go to heaven without an arm than go to hell with both arms. Jesus was cut off so the rest of the body could be preserved. Interesting illustration, and that's what he's saying there. And obviously, he couldn't stay in the grave because he was perfect. But that's why he was the only one who could make that sacrifice for us. So there is security, not in idolatry of a tradition or method or a mechanical thing, but simply in trusting in Jesus, recognizing that we don't have to pay for our debts. Unfortunately, in what is called the Eucharist, Charlie Campbell would say, who's an apologist, he says, this involves the re-sacrificing or the representing of the sacrifice of Jesus to the Father in order to appease God's wrath and cover people's sins. In the Eucharist, there are some people that believe that as you partake of the bread, it literally becomes the body of Jesus because God the Father is up there and he's angry and you have to constantly atone for your sins. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died once and for all, which means that your sins have been forgiven in a past event. It's been done. Long ago, when Jesus died to the cross, this is why he uses this imagery, your sins were also nailed to that cross. Why does he, why does he use that imagery? It's because, remember, if you've ever seen like the Passion movie or whatever, they would often take the sins of the person, the reason why they were being crucified, write it on a sign, and nail it to the cross. Remember that? And Jesus... Because they didn't know what to do. They wrote, King of the Jews. That's why he's being crucified and nailed it on the cross. Now, what they're saying here, what God is saying in the book of Colossians, is that your sins have been blotted out, wiped out, and the very thing, that sign, your sins, have been nailed to the cross back there in the past event. Just as Jesus died on the cross, so your sins were nailed to that cross as well. Everything that you've ever committed. So why do we live as if forgiveness is a future event? Many of us do. That we can't even forgive ourselves because of the things that we've done or we've committed or we don't feel like we're forgiven. Well, this is where we need to recognize that just as we have been united in Christ in his death, we are also united in his resurrection. Look at, well, you don't have to look at there. I'll just read it for you. Romans chapter 6, if you want to write that down. Romans 6 verses 5 through 8 says... For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So here's the thing. Jesus, it says in verse 15, if you look at it, he disarmed these principalities and powers, these things that they were afraid of, and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The reality is, we still have the demonic forces at work, right? Satan and his demons are always trying to discourage us, remind us of, those, of the guilt, remind us of our sins, remind us of the shame, our inadequacy. But Jesus constantly leads us to victory. It's not a future event, but you can have it right now. As soon as you recognize what God had already done, 
It's been said before, I think Washman was the first person who said it, that we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. It's a position that we have eternally, knowing that we don't have to earn our salvation, but we have God's favor already if we have asked for forgiveness and it's been done away with. So we don't have to constantly come up. I mean, I probably use this illustration a billion times, but I'll use it again because it's, it's a good one and it's funny. I probably shouldn't have said that because if it's not funny, you won't, I'll feel bad. I had a youth leader when I was in high school who, he was like teaching youth group or something and he made like an Asian joke about rice and he pointed to me like your typical Asian guy. Only half Asian, but I'm the Asian guy. So he started talking about Chinese food or something. I love Chinese food or something. And I felt fine because I was used to it, I guess. But he felt so bad, so guilty that constantly he would come up to me like, Alan, I'm so sorry. I don't know how I could have done something so stupid. I was not reverent to the word of God. Would you ever think of maybe in the future forgiving me? And I was like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, cool. I literally couldn't even hang out with him anymore because he would just bring it up over and over and over. Seriously. Like, I'd be like, hey, you want to go evangelizing at the mall? And he was like, Alan, I'm so sorry. And I was just like, I don't even care. He's like, that's the problem. You don't even care. I was just like. But I think it's a good illustration of how we treat the Lord sometimes, right? That we constantly are bringing it up every single time. Your worship is ruined. Because every time that you're about to sing a song, you're like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Oh, no, I'm so guilty. I'm such a sinner. I'm so filthy. How could I ever come? And that's all you focus on in your time of prayer. Like, let's recognize we're forgiven and just go out and change people. Let's recognize we're forgiven and start thanking God. Thank you, Lord, that I am forgiven. Thank you, Lord, that you want to use me, that my life is not over, that what I've done is in the past and you still have a future for me. You have plans for me, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give me a future and a hope. And if, if I seek you, I will find you if I seek you with all my heart, verse 13. So we have to believe by faith that God wants to use us in the future and allow that to sink in, in the present so we're not constantly bringing up our shame if God himself has blotted it out, nailed it to the cross, why do we keep returning to that same place trying to dig it up? So if that's you tonight, this is how I would challenge you. Would you allow, even, we're going to have a time of response worship right now. And I want you to be able to just lay it once and for all at the cross. And say, I'm not going to walk in condemnation. Because here's the thing. If you walk in condemnation feeling like you always have to earn it. It's going to distract you. It's going to completely distract you from your worship of Jesus. Because here's the thing. You can't worship God for the sins he's forgiven you if you don't feel like those sins are forgiven. So your worship will be hindered and distracted unless you do that. And here's the other thing. You will return to those sins because you feel like, well, you're a failure anyway. Might as well keep on sinning if that's all I am is a sinner. We need to recognize that God has given us victory today. So let's pray.